Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. Christian imagery, symbols, and motifs have long been used and incorporated in fashion. Famous designers such as Coco Chanel, Gianni Versace, and Dolce & Gabbana have made Christianity trendy and fashionable. But there is a history that precedes the seemingly recent fusion of Christianity and fashion. Lynn Neal traces this history in Religion in Vogue, Christianity and Fashion in America. Through an analysis of fashion magazines and the designs of prominent fashion designers, Neil examines the history of Christianity and fashion starting in the mid-20th century to the beginning of the 21st century. Neil convincingly demonstrates that the history of Christianity and fashion provides an avenue through which to study Christianity in the United States more broadly. Lynn Neal is Professor of Religious Studies at Wake Forest University. Hi, Lynn, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me on. To start us off, I'm wondering if you could describe the genesis of this project. Why did you want to study religion and fashion? Certainly. Um, So much to say on this question. In the early 2010s, I was already reading uh, in the literature on clothing, dress, and fashion for some other smaller projects. And I really got interested in this literature. And for me, it was really... uh, a generative literature to be reading in and fascinating to me. And then along this, about the same time, I was starting to see a lot of religion and fashion items in news headlines. For example, in 2011, some people might remember there was a very controversial bathing suit featuring the Hindu goddess Lakshmi. It was by an Australian designer, Lisa Burke. And she had lived in India for a time, designed this bathing suit, which then caused a lot of controversy globally. She had to apologize. The bathing suit was never never produced or sold. It was pulled from uh, production. So that happened. And then less than two years later, in 2013, British Vogue proclaimed that a quote-unquote Holy Spirit had infused the fashion industry at that time, because so many designers and collections were featuring religious and Christian themed items. So a lot, so I had this two streams. One, this I was reading in this literature on religion and fashion, and then I'm starting to see more and more intersections of religion and fashion in the headlines. And for me, they were starting to come together around this question that I was asking, it became the guiding research question for the book was, how did God get on a dress or a bathing suit? How did this come to be that religious and particular Christian symbols and icons were being incorporated so often into the fashion industry? And that then led to this project where I kind of trace this history, both thematically and chronologically in the book from 1945 to approximately 2013. So throughout the book, you use the term fashionable religion. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what you mean by that. 
Certainly. What I really wanted to capture with the term fashionable religion are the ways these two concepts, fashion and religion, are interconnected and intertwined. And more specifically than that, though, I wanted to really highlight how the fashion industry is actively constructing and creating a conception of what religion, and again, the focus of my book is on Christianity more specifically, but what Christianity and religion more broadly look like, how they work, what they how they appear to us. And it does this through advertisements featuring Christian symbols and language or designs inspired by religious uniforms, garments embellished with Christian icons and Christian symbols. And so through using this terminology, what I hope is it draws one attention to this kind of active construction that's happening in a realm traditionally considered quote unquote, secular or non-religious and kind of problematizing that notion. And then at the same time, disrupting any tendencies that people might have to see religion and fashion as separate or as only connected through a lens of antagonism, because that's what you often see in the kind of headlines and in um, the, the news articles and in social media are often moments of antagonism or tension, like the Lakshmi bathing suit example. But that's not all there is. Certainly antagonism is part of the story, but there's also a lot more happening there that the book goes into. And I wanted, I think the fa- term fashionable religion tries to capture that creativity and the longstanding relationship between the two concepts. So in the first chapter of your book, you examine um, articles about religion that appeared in fashion magazines, which is quite, or it seems a little bit different than what you're talking about right now with with designers incorporating, specifically incorporating Christian symbols and motifs and imagery in their designs. So I'm just curious if you could uh, maybe explain to us why you used that um, as your point of departure for the book. That's It's true. It isn't the most obvious point of departure for the book because... Yeah, these articles in that appear in fashion magazines don't talk about fashion. And when I was starting out and trying to cre- answer this question of how did God get on a dress, I think I'll answer that question and I'll answer the other. Um, so that question of how God got on a dress is a historical question. And I was going to religious studies sources and religious studies monographs and not finding anything that talked about fashion and the ways I was seeing it, and then going to fashion studies sources, and they're not talking about religion and religious studies in any kind of meaningful way. And so I had to turn to fashion magazines as a way into this history of this long-standing relationship between religion and fashion, and not knowing what I would find. I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, or predict in that sense. But when I got there, and I was, again, starting in 1945, around that time, and was looking in fashion magazines, I wasn't seeing what I thought would, I wasn't seeing tons of religious symbols on dresses. I wasn't seeing that at all. In fact, what I was seeing were fashion magazines, uh, publishing spiritual leaders and religious figures like Fulton Sheen, Thomas Merton, 
pieces by Phyllis McGinley, a Catholic poet and, and essayist, uh, quotes from the Desert Fathers. So what I had to do was reconceptualize, like, oh, kind of jettison what I had expected and open myself up to what it was actually seeing in the magazines and realizing that in terms of thinking about the relationship between religion and fashion, that a lot of that started in the ideas about religion and fashion, if that makes any sense, that religion was a part of the discourse that they were incorporating into fashion magazines. And then only over time was it incorporated in more and in different ways, if that makes any sense. Oh, certainly. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the articles became a way to set a foundation for how fashion was conceptualizing Christianity through who it published and on the topics it was publishing. So it really sent the foundation for that mid-century relationship that I was seeing between Christianity and fashion. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on the tenor of these articles. What were they about? What was their purpose? And what what conclusion could you draw from the incorporation of these types of articles in fashion magazines? Certainly. So what you see, I think, is really interesting is who they're quoting and who they're publishing, which were in in that day, mid-century, in that time period, were kind of spiritual elites, people that were popular, people that were deemed sophisticated. So chaplains at Ivy League universities, accomplished uh, authors such as Thomas Merton, Fulton Sheen uh, in that way. So they're teaching, I think, these articles and by publishing these people and not others, they're, they were teaching people who they should be listening to in terms of Christian and spiritual leadership, people that were in some way uh, more modern, more liberal in a kind of progressive uh, psychological uh, let me put that differently more liberal in terms of being open to different ideas about psychology and religion more open to god working in the world in diverse ways in that sense because i think um, that was one part of the article and then the articles also kind of really emphasize in religious individualism and spiritual reassurance, which were broader religious trends at the time. So you see fashion magazines such as Vogue participating in broader religious publishing trends that have been documented very well by other scholars, but also kind of putting their own spin on those trends and offering people in fashion magazines, hey, here's who you should be reading. Here's the message you should take away. Religion still matters in the world, but maybe not always in the ways that you've been taught. Um, that religion can still provide you with answers, but maybe you need to think about religion in these ways that are more sophisticated, more uh, liberal, more, quote unquote, enlightened. Um, as you mentioned earlier, you also looked at the ways in which um, Christianity and Christian symbols were used in advertisements um, in magazines and fashion magazines, I guess, um, around the same time. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on that. Certainly. So. I think these first two chapters of the book, the first on articles, the second on advertisements that appear in fashion magazines, really capture the religious ideas that are circulating at the time, but also in fashion magazines. And what are they doing? They're kind of setting up this relationship between religion and fashion. And with the advertisements, we go a step further, right? There is where you start to see 
fashion explicitly intersecting with religious ideas and using and incorporating it in very clear ways. So you see church interiors and exteriors, steeples and stained glass in advertisements. You see the language of Sunday best and Easter dresses. You're seeing the language and then imagery of angels. The same with miracles, biblical heroine Eve. Uh, Also think about Christian gestures that appear in advertisements in these magazines. So that would include praying hands, heads bowed in prayer, heads raised in adoration. So you're seeing this proliferation of Christian imagery and language in advertisements that appear in fashion magazines. And with that, I think you get uh, two things, that at least two things that it draws our attention to. First, it highlights this de facto, almost taken for granted Christian character of the fashion slash advertising industry at the time, that advertisers are using this language and this imagery because one, they know it, and they assume their readers will know it, right? Because otherwise, it doesn't have power. It doesn't have meaning. It's not going to sell products if it doesn't resonate with an audience in some way. And it's really interesting. It's in the advertisements. It's very subtle. They don't really draw attention to it very much. It's just there. So it's part of the backdrop that they're assuming, and they are assuming that the potential consumer reader will know. I think it's So that's one thing that I think is really important with these advertisements. Another thing to really think about is the ways that these advertisements are combining ideas that we would traditionally associate with Christianity and then combining those with fashion and fashion products, fashion um, products becoming miraculous, fashion products being described as heavenly, divine, miraculous. And so they're promising uh, consumers' transformations and enchanting possibilities through fashion products. So really what you see is fashion situating itself through these advertisements as a mediator of religion and spirituality. And it's offering consumers a way to access that through consumption, ways that are perhaps easier or different than other really traditionally religious means of transformation. So similar outcomes, but different paths to those uh, spiritual transformations. So I'm wondering if we can um, switch gears a little bit and talk about the cross, which um, in your book really is the first overt use of a Christian symbol in fashion designs. And um, well, that you examine in, in, in detail, I guess. Um, and I think most people can picture Madonna wearing the cross and rosaries as accessories in the 1980s, pretty, um, a pretty recognizable cultural moment, I guess. And, but, there, but as you demonstrate, there's a long history of wearing the cross as a fashion accessory that precedes Madonna. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about the cross and how it became um, a fashion accessory. Yes, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of us of a certain age can remember that iconic Madonna desperately seeking Susan moment in the 1980s. And that is, in fact, when I've looked at fashion histories of uh, religious accessories, they often highlight that period in time and don't go back any further. But what I found is going through fashion magazines, fashion advertisements, and looking at different designers was a longer history, as you mentioned, 
that the cross, in fact, became was popular much earlier than the 1960s and became a fashionable accessory in the 50s and 1960s, in large part through the work of Gabrielle Coco Chanel. Uh, Chanel partnered with two famous designers, Verdura and Robert Goosens. And with each of these designers, she produced two popular cross trends. Uh, for first, her partnership with Verdura um, focused on the Maltese cross, and he together they produced these multi-cross, Maltese cross cuffs that she was uh, known for wearing. It was kind of one of her staple uh, pieces of jewelry that she wore in many photographs over the years and were very popular. But that was one of the designs that she was known for and then replicated in pendants and brooches and other uh, accessories. And then her work with Robert Goosens really focused on Byzantine-inspired cross pendants. And both of these styles, the Maltese and the Byzantine, became quite popular and became hallmarks of the House of Chanel in terms of their jewelry. If anyone was able to visit the Heavenly Bodies exhibit at the Met in 2018 in the jewelry section, you would would have seen examples of both of these trends. They had multiple uh, examples of the cuffs and of the pendants. But what happens in the 1960s is we see other designers, both at the high end and at the more affordable end of the spectrum, uh, be inspired by and expand upon these trends. So you start to see a proliferation of different types of cross jewelry in the 1960s. And so you'll and you'll see them labeled simply uh, Byzantine cross and that that can mean many things, as I talk about in the book. For some, it's like Chanel, it's this rough cut use of stones, of a more very similar to the mosaics that she was inspired by in cities like Ravenna, Italy. Uh, but in other examples, it's like really big gold encrusted with jewels uh, with your, you know, the popular style of the day in the 1960s. So the meaning of some of these terms varies widely. But that's fascinating in and of itself. But by 1968, you have both Vogue and the New York Times saying, well, there's a new fashion fad and it's the cross. How did this happen? And for me, it happens in large part, what I see is through, through the work of Coco Chanel. In the last part of the book, you examine how fashion designers incorporated more overt, well, I guess the cross is pretty overt, but anyways, but um, incorporated more overt Christian themes and imagery into their designs. Um, so for example, designers made clothes inspired by nuns' habits and incorporated pictures of Jesus and the Virgin Mary in their clothing. So how did the fashion industry transition from cross accessories to, as you put it, putting God on a dress? Yes. Yeah, so the book is organized most broadly, as I said, chrono- chronologically from 1945 to 2013. And then within that, I've organized it kind of thematically by a predominant type of mediation in terms of how fashion mediates elements of Christianity. So it moves from articles to advertisements, to accessories, to designs, to representational figural uh, religious imagery. And each chapter, it's a step in the story, if you will. So one way to think about this kind of trajectory 
is to think about how the fashion industry works. What are some of the structural principles that motivate this industry? And one of the most dominant of those features uh, is novelty and innovation, that designers constantly have to produce something different, something new, something interesting. And having already utilized the Christian uh, imaginary in the in the form of the cross successfully in the 50s and 60s, what you see are designers then returning to that same source of inspiration and then pushing it further. So you see there's a kind of return and then an expansion in this kind of recursive pattern throughout the book. So it's not that you know crosses go away forever after the 60s. No, we see them in the 60s. Oh, and then they crop up again, as we talked about with Madonna in the 80s, up and then again in the early 2000s with celebrities like Jennifer Aniston or um, Catherine Zeta-Jones. But with that, then there's also a pushing past that because of this quest for newness and innovation with designers. So success breeds, breeds more in that sense. So you have designers pushing further and like, oh, well, the cross was successful. And then given their own autobiographical experiences for designers, many of them steeped in religious traditions or shaped by them in some way, going back to that same source and pushing it further to uh, religious uniforms, religious garb, priest cassocks, monks robes, um, nuns habits, and then utilizing and incorporating that into to their designs. We see this in the 1960s, around the same time that the cross gets popular. We see an upsurge in designs inspired by religious Catholic religious uniforms. So priests, monks, and nuns, in that sense. We see it with designers such as Balenciaga, who is known for his sculptural designs and his beautiful, sophisticated aesthetic. But we also see it in the work at, of more popular, um, affordable designers uh, in their kind of mini dresses inspired by monks' robes and nuns' habits. So they're going back to the same sources of inspiration, adding to them and pushing further. And it's, I think you could see the same thing with the move to figural religious imagery being incorporated into fashion, that it's only after this trend of using religious or ecclesiastical dress as inspiration, that it's well established that designers go back and then say, what else can we do? So they go further. Then they're incorporating the Virgin Mary. They're incorporating saints. They're incorporating Jesus. So I see what I see over time is this repetition and then also expansion in these cyclical patterns, because that's another feature of the fashion industry, right? That certain trends become popular, and then as soon as they become popular, the styles have to change, and so they decline, but then then they come back at a later point. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on the reception um, by, I guess, the wider public, um, the wider, wider culture to using uh, or to the fashion industry incorporating um, Christian symbols into their designs. Um, at the beginning of our interview, you mentioned that there was um, backlash against the, I guess, the designer who designed the bikini um, with the Hindu goddess um, imagery. So I'm wondering what what has been the reception to um, the fashion industry's use of 
um, Christian symbols and their designs? Yeah, this, this is a super interesting question and one that I'm fascinated by because a lot of times what you don't hear about are the collections that incorporate religion and Christianity that are celebrated, that critics deem beautiful and imaginative and helpful. What you really see, uh, those of us who are maybe uh, regular observers or even casual observers of the fashion industry, what you tend to see are the responses, the reception of antagonism. But what I uncovered in, in the book is a much broader sense of acceptance or perhaps just people don't care. Like there's this kind of um, taken for granted character to it. Um, what I find interesting though is which collections are celebrated and accepted and which are deemed controversial. And that is really an interesting thing to think about in terms of questions of authenticity. So one thing that I talk about in the book are how certain designers and their collections are deemed authentic because of a combination of the designer's personal experience, their aesthetic, you know, what they're known for in terms of their style, and then what exactly they're designing. So one example would be the 2013 Dolce & Gabbana collection called Tailored Mosaic. It was inspired by the Cathedral of Montreal and their press release for the collection explicitly named that as a source of inspiration. The duo design duo also has ties to Sicily. Obviously, they're Italian. And so you have this sense of connection, right, between what they're naming as their inspiration, their ties to Italy, their ties to Sicily. Um, and so people reading that collection as a celebration of Italian Catholicism and being faithful in some way to the original referent, right, the, the mosaics at Montreal. But what's interesting is that that one being celebrated, but then others such as the bathing suit uh, by Lisa Burke being critiqued because people not seeing her relationship to India, to Hinduism in some kind of authentic way. So I, what intrigues me is how authenticity is evaluated, is, is being defined and used in these situations. Uh, another example that might be interesting to people is in the 1990s with Karl Lagerfeld, when he was the head designer for Chanel, uh, was inspired, he was inspired by the Taj Mahal. And many designers, I mean, that's how they uh, root their collections, right? It's in this artistic idea of inspiration, which can be um, contested and is an interesting thing to think about in and of itself. But he's interested, Karl Lagerfeld is interested in and inspired by the Taj Mahal and the calligraphy on the walls. He is told by someone that it is a, a love poem. So he incorporates it into the bodice of three dresses that are part of the collection, not knowing that those that calligraphy is from the Quran. And then this causes, again, more controversy. And it's not. Uh, and so he House of Chanel apologizes profusely. 
They apparently destroyed the dresses. They asked photographers to destroy the film. They did not because we still, you can Google this. You'll see this imagery uh, very easily on Google Images and other kind of internet sources. But again, so viewers, audiences not seeing that as an authentic reflection of who Lagerfeld or Chanel as a design house is or are at that time, but then other moments where we see these collections being deemed like, yeah, that's okay. That's pretty. Um, that's great. Uh, so what? that's something that's interesting to me is how people in terms of reception are decoding or using the idea of authenticity to evaluate these collections. One of the things that lies at the heart of the book is gender. Um, as you point out, the fashion industry is highly gendered for the most part, um, women are the consumers of fashion, and the majority of the pieces you discuss in the book are meant to be consumed by women or are designed for women, it appears. Um, so I'm just wondering, what does the fusion of Christianity and fashion tell us about religion and gender more broadly? Yes, I think that's a great question. I think it tells us a few things. One, it encourages us to think about all the forces and all the forces that go into reinforcing uh, gendered religious norms and fashion is a part of that because so much of the religious imagery and the religious ideas in this fusion of religion and fashion reinforce traditional cisgender white women kinds of norms, right? That they're not especially innovative in that way or troublesome or transgressive. But I would say at the same time, there are some moments in this fusion of Christianity and fashion where we can see gender norms being questioned in small ways, maybe temporarily subverted, temporarily disrupted. So I think, one, the kind of magnitude of the ways that Christianity and fashion together reinforce gender norms, but also seeing some small moments where these ideas could be problematized, questioned, creating space for people to dissent and subvert and transgress. Um, the other thing, maybe on a different level that this question makes me think about is the critiques I hear about this kind of consumer-based spirituality or religiosity that you see in the fusion of Christianity and fashion and I think that's gendered in ways we need to pay attention to, the ways that women as consumers of fashion or being the, the as you pointed out, as the kind of focus of so much of the fashion industry. Um, but there's an idea that that is coded, I think, as superficial, trivial, or not serious. And so these religious manifestations that might be associated with that kind of consumption are also somehow uh, lesser or derided in these critiques. And I find that a little troubling. And I don't mean to dismiss the importance of the economic motivations of the fashion industry, because that's certainly a part of it. But I think if we think about what women are doing with these items, how they might be thinking about them, and again, that's not the this specific focus of the book, but I think it's an important thing for us to think about is, you know, that kind of 
space that exists through this relationship between Christianity, fashion, and consumption, and the small affordance, affordances it can create for people to for them to create meaning and um, purpose in some kind of way. So I guess I want to push back against maybe critiques that exist that say, you know, this kind of spirituality is not religious enough um, or isn't quote unquote real religion, even though so many scholars have debunked these notions, it see they seem to be implicit in many of the critiques leveled against this kind of spirituality. And sort of related to, to part of your answer here, I'm, I'm curious, in your work, did, were you able to discern who exactly consumes this type of fashion and these type of designs? Are they, are they Christian women or, or not even? I really didn't focus on that so much in the book. It's really a supply side, which I know is frustrating for people. And hope that might be the next project. I'll just say that right now <laughs> is looking more at the consumer side. But the book is, and that was the hard part about the book, I will say, was I am a, a scholar that's really interested in people and what people do. So this project was different in the sense that it was very much about the circulation of ideas about religion and the, these products that are circulating. So I don't have a lot of data in the book about the consumers of it, except for a few anecdotes here and there and some things from newspapers about its reception. Um, but mm -hmm. from what I did see, um, there's a really interesting uh, example in chapter four about ecclesiastical dress, these designs inspired by uh, religious uniforms and nuns' habits, things like that, uh, by one author who just wrote about for her when she was shopping and seeing these designs inspired by religious uniforms, she was so drawn to them because of what they symbolized. And that by wearing, for example, uh, a coat that was, resembles a priest's cassock or something like that, that she could feel protected, that she could feel safe. So it wasn't about a religious identity per se. In the, in the piece, she never mentions her religious identity. I don't, it's not about that in a way. It's about what these garments represent to people, that they're religious in some way that might be protective, might be an emblem of safety. Maybe it's ideas about luck um, or, yeah, maybe, you know, protection, things like that. Um, you argue that the fashion industry actively shapes and constructs popular conceptualizations of religion and religions. Um, so I'm curious, what kind of Christianity has fashion and the fashion industry played a role in constructing? Yes. Yeah, so the fashion industry constructs this image of Christianity as beautiful and wonderful, innovative and enchanting. And it does this by emphasizing the transformative power of Christianity's symbols, its images, and its figures. So therefore, you would want to buy one, right? Buy a, a garment or an accessory that contains access to this power. So it's really operating, op, offering people a way to access this Christian supernatural that's benevolent, that's diffuse, that isn't confined to or limited by a tradition or an institution. And I would add that it's offering also at least offering 
prescriptively an idea that it works, that this these products are going to transform your life in some kind of powerful way. And so it's really offering a romanticized, what I also call aestheticized vision of Christianity that is devoid of conflict, devoid of pain, devoid of enduring problems, because these products can mitigate that, right? That these products are about positive forces of power, wonder, enchantment in some kind of way. So I think that's an interesting theme that comes through in the book is this Beautiful, and it's historical in some way, but not in a nuanced, textured way. So it's this play on the ideas associated with the imagery, with the symbols. So if you think about, for example, the nun's habit and designs inspired by that, it's not about the details. It's about the uh, the details of what the nun's habit means historically in a Catholic context. It's about taking that idea and moving it into a different context and keeping more superficial understandings of it, but also thinking about the power associated with those superficial meanings, right? So adding, I don't know, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, that superficial and not at the same time. Mm. Um, You also argue in the book, and I'm going to quote you here because I thought it was just um, really succinctly said. Um, You argue that, quote, examining the long and intertwined history of religion and fashion enriches our understanding of significant changes in American religious life in the latter half of the 20th century. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that for us. Certainly. The the book is really about this, I think, in in its most basic level in thinking about how religion and Christianity have shifted over the past uh, 60 or 70 years since the mid 20th century. And my thinking in this in this part is really informed by sociologists of religion, such as Robert Withnow and Wade Clark Roof, who have documented the changing religious demographics and thought about those the shifting religious landscapes since the 1950s. So we know as scholars of U.S. religion that since the Christian revivals in the 1950s, where church attendance peaked in the late 50s at almost half of Americans going to church every week, that there's been a decline in institutional religious affiliation. And so sociologists of religion have understood this through uh, various demographic studies and bigger studies. But what I think Religion in Vogue adds to that is a look at a different realm, right? And how some of these changes are occurring through fashion and the visual realm. So I see this relationship with between Christianity and fashion reflecting some of these changes in the decline of religious affiliation. So with that declining religious affiliation, it makes sense then that Christian imagery and symbols and language is moving out of the church context because the church context is becoming less and less significant to people as we see even today with the most recent uh, demographic studies and religious affiliation. So it's reflecting those larger trends in that way. But at the same time, though, moving these ideas and symbols out of the church gives more people access to and control over them and what they mean. It allows people to personalize and customize these 
symbols and these objects and these ideas to what they need at any given moment. So at the same time that traditional institutional religious affiliation is declining, we see the rise in the concept of spirituality and more individualized forms of faith, what Robert Wood now calls the seeking or the spiritual seekers of the time. So that's what I think this book kind of captures is this this changing landscape, and it's adding this visual material fashion element to it. And I mean, because you think about it, even today, we still have see uh, religious symbols, and particular Christian symbols on bumper stickers, jewelry, phone cases, purses, t-shirts. So even as people have, are less and less tied to institutional religious contexts, they're still drawn to these symbols in powerful ways. So another sociologist of religion, Grace Davy, talks about the situation in Western Europe in terms of believing but not belonging, which I think we can apply now to the American context and thinking about even as religious affiliation has declined, people still have relatively high rates of belief in traditional religious Christian concepts. Uh, for example, high rates, pretty high rates of belief in God. Uh, frequency of prayer, still pretty high. Belief in the afterlife, particularly heaven, still very high. And I was also looking at just some of the most recent study, a very high with even younger demographics ideas about wonder and uh, enchantment, and that's still being very high. So this believing without belonging is an interesting trend to think about in relationship to Christianity and fashion. And then I'll add one other idea here to think about, and that is the increasing pick and mix attitude toward religion, where with this decline in religious affiliation, the people are increasingly selecting what's meaningful for them. And that can be, you know, the lyrics of their favorite song, the mythic uh, element of a movie, plus maybe the the inspiration they find in a particular garment or a piece of jewelry. Um, I was also, I found myself curious and wondering if you um, noticed in your work, and perhaps you didn't because you focused on high, like you focused on Vogue and other fashion outlets and high-end designers, but I was sort of wondering if um, you saw similar uses of Christian imagery in more affordable fashion outlets. So I'm thinking like H&M and Zara and Urban Outfitters or, or stores like that. Um, so I'm just curious, did this trend transcend the high fashion world into more conventional and accessible fashion outlets? I think short answer, yes, definitely. I think you see examples of this Christian imagery in definitely more affordable designers and fashion, designs and fashion accessories. So I'll think about this in two ways. Some designers' wares are more affordable than other designs. So garments, for example, in the Faith collection that I talk about in the book, um, this is a collection that featured really prominent imagery of Jesus. They are cheap, I guess it depends on how we're defining cheap, but we're talking hundred, a hundred or a couple hundred dollars, not thousands of dollars. So when I go on to look at, you know, to see, oh, how much does, you know, a dress by Dolce & Gabbana cost, or that's in the thousands of dollars, but you have this, the faith collection, you could buy a shirt for, you know, 150 perhaps. So more affordable designers are possible. And I would also think here, some people might be interested in Kanye West's uh, Sunday service items. 
So those are less than designs by figures like Dolce & Gabbana or um, uh, Alexander McQueen's design house. But I still have seen a lot of outrage on the internet that $50 is too much to pay for a pair of socks. So, you know, some of that is interesting, that dialogue. But you also get, um, if you just look at Amazon, for example, and type in different variations, Christian, Virgin Mary, Jesus, you're going to get a range of t-shirts, but you're also going to start to see dresses, blouses, kind of business casual uh, garments that feature religious imagery. And I think that's interesting. I've had them because of the things I search on my phone and computer, I've had them come up in Instagram feeds, dresses featuring religious and Christian imagery uh, come up. That's definitely more affordable. So, you know, some of it's from Europe, some from America, but, you know, 50 to $100 range, not thousands of dollars. So mm. all this goes to show this kind of trickle down theory of fashionism play that what high-end designers produce then influences the market and what what other more affordable houses and companies are trying to emulate. I would also say, I think there's also a trickle up effect in not only trickle down that street styles, everyday fashions can influence designers as well. So you might see, you know, now that Kanye West is designing certain things, I wonder if there'll be a you know, he's kind of, I think, this figure in the middle. He's not up there. People aren't going to, they're going to consider him a designer, but maybe not in the same way they would uh, Balenciaga or uh, McQueen in that way. So I wonder if we might see more influence up by figures like him in, the, in this kind of intermediary realm that they might uh, be incorporating some of his ideas more. That would be interesting. Um, you obviously focus mostly on um, Christianity um, in your in your work, but I was curious, and you allude to it in the book, and you talked about it in our interview, but uh, with regards to Karl Lagerfeld and the um, the Quran dress. But in your in your research, did you find um, that fashion designers mostly use Christianity or in Christian symbols, or were there other um, traditions and imagery that were used from other um, religions as well, or was it mostly Christianity that you saw? I saw mostly, but not only Christianity. And I think it's it's because I'm trained as a historian of American Christianity that you, you see in some sense what you know, but that is by no means the end of the story. And I hope others will engage in the scholarship and go back to these fashion sources that have people with broader knowledge of different traditions than I have, because I saw numerous references to classical religious traditions uh, the goddesses, you know, uh, Athena, um, Aphrodite, you have these kinds of references. But then you also had a lot of influence from Asian religious traditions, uh, both Buddhism and Hinduism. So there were examples of Hindu temple earrings that were, I mean, it's not as prominent, but it is there. Um, heavily, uh, a lot of designers heavily influenced by India and those religious traditions. Um, and, and more that could be done, for example, on Judaism and in terms of design houses, jewelry houses, and the fashion that's produced. Hmm. Um, you conclude the book with a, with a very poignant and succinct statement, quote, fashion history is religious history. Um, and you may have touched on this in the answer um, to a question I asked you previously, but I'm just wondering, what did you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, so I think... 
for me, that statement really captures the need for us to look at religion from different, the concept of religion from different lenses, from different sources. And in having to foreground fashion sources in this study, because it's, it couldn't find it in some of the other places I might have traditionally looked, what it really taught me is how much we can learn in our field about religion and religious studies through sources not traditionally deemed religious and the importance of doing so and going beyond our comfort zones. It's scary. You know, you're going into new literatures and new fields where you're, you don't know the landscape as well, but I think it's really important for us to do this, particularly as religious affiliation is declining and what we have, how we've conceptualized religion historically doesn't, always make sense anymore. So I think we're going to need to kind of keep to keep looking beyond the traditional boundaries of what we've coded as religion or religious as we move forward. Hmm. Um, so we're approaching the end of our interview and I have one last question for you. Um, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I gave a little hint earlier, but I really am interested in moving into the reception side of this conversation more. And I think people are interested in that. And as you asked, what, what is that reception like? What are people really think? So I'm, I'm interested in figuring out a way to tackle that question uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a project. And I'm also interested in what this project religion folk didn't give me time to do was to go deeper into some of the garments Mm. in a kind of material religion analysis kind of way and I'd really like to spend a little bit more time in some of the objects if you will some of these garments and going deeper in that way so maybe some shorter studies on that and then a longer uh, study on some of the reception of these items and how people are thinking about religion and fashion in this day and age. So when you say reception of these items, are you thinking specifically of the people who are consuming and wearing these items or? Yes, definitely. Like people, and and it could be that consumption doesn't even need to be wearing or buying them. It could be for some of these, as you mentioned, they're not affordable in Mm. that. So it might be thinking about how people see them and interpret them through you know, photo elicitation, perhaps as a, you know, looking at photographs of these, and what people think how they might, how viewing them alone might impact ideas about uh, religion or spirituality. And mm. so I think that's, um, yeah, it's kind of nascent right now, I'm not quite sure. But I think I'm interested in that, as well as maybe thinking about um, no, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be really interesting because, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how folks, as you say, receive or interpret um, this type of fashion. I, I would be really interested to see that. Um, so, yeah, it'd be a great continuation of the project, a great um, uh, sequel, I, I guess. You know, it would be, I would be really interested in that. Um, well, thank you so much, Lynn, for taking the time to speak with us today about your work. It was it really was a pleasure reading and talking to you about your book. Um Lynn's book, Religion in Vogue, Christianity and Fashion in America, is out now. <laughs>